Today we begin reading in Acts chapter 12. It says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this is a tough thing to read, you know. You, you wonder, why would God allow James to die like this? You might remember as you read through the Gospels that James was part of the inner circle. You know, he was one of the three who were closest to Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration, there he was. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, there he was. And in different times of healing and miracles, there he was in the inner circle. And so you wonder, why would God allow him to die? To us, it doesn't make any sense. You know, the truth is, when it comes to things like this, why that person died at such a young age, or why these things happen, we don't know why. The Bible here doesn't say why, other than the fact that Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, and so he had James executed. You know, we look at that now from a merely human perspective, but we know there's more to it than that, don't we? We know that God was there. We know that God never looks the other way. And so we come back to the question, Lord, why would you allow James to die at such a young age? And, and you know, for us, as we come to places like this in the Bible, you know, we don't have all the answers. Christians don't have all the answers. Pastors don't have all the answers to all the questions. You know, we could speculate, and sometimes people like to live in that, you know, that nation of uh, speculation or even that nation of explanation because they think they're God. Listen, we don't know why all these things happen, but I like what Warren Wiersbe said. We don't live on explanations. We live on promises. And, and what Pastor Chuck said would always comfort me. Whenever you come across something in life that you don't understand, you must fall back on what you do understand. Listen, God is loving. He proved it because he died for you on the cross. God is sovereign and in control, and God is working everything out for good. We must trust the wisdom of his plan. We have to understand that our Father knows best all of our lives and even in death. You know, here's the thing, and we're going to learn. It's interesting, today's study, we'll learn a few things about dying. Listen, unless we're raptured, we all have a day. There is a day for me. There is a day for you. It's already destined in God's calendar. It's circled there. According to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And here's the thing, it doesn't really matter how long. It matters how deep. It doesn't matter whether it's a sprint or a mile or a marathon. The most important thing is that we finish our race. We finish the work that God has entrusted to us. And then when that race is over, then it's time to go home. And that's what happened to James. You know, we believe it's probably about, you know, 14, 15 years. Undoubtedly, he's done a lot all these years since Jesus rose from the dead and he's serving the church, you know. But, but now it's time for him to go home. And, you know, in one sense, it's, it's an honor, it's a privilege to be the first of the apostles to die the martyr's death. There's no doubt about it that when Herod arrested him, because it's interesting, in the Jewish writings, you know, the Jews would kill by stoning, the Romans would kill by crucifixion. So what's this sword all about? And there's a lot of people that believe, because we found in Jewish writings, 
that the Jews came to a place now in history where they killed heretics by the sword. And so, you know, Herod, he's part Jew. He's a descendant of the Maccabees. He kind of has a professing Jewish man. And so, combine all that thing, what we find is that now he's killing them. He's killing the James as a heretic. And he's pointing the sword at him. And he's saying, all you have to do is deny the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll live. And of course, James doesn't deny, and he dies, and he paves the way for all the apostles who would follow. Other than John, they all died a martyr's death. And so, you know, we can look at it, and we can see, well, maybe that's why, you know, God has his reasons for the particular race that we run. James would strengthen the church in his death. Some believe that, you know, James finished first because of this. And all I know is that, you know, there's something about going first, huh? You guys ever face situations like that? You know, when we're in Cambodia and we're there and we pull off the side of the road and there's a whole bunch of crickets for sale and they say, okay, let's eat crickets in Cambodia. And then what do we say? Well, you go first. (laughs) If you go first and you live, (laughs) then I'll follow. And it's kind of like that. James went first. He paved the way, and the others would follow. You see, God has different plans. He would have different plans for Peter, we're going to see in just a second. It doesn't mean that Peter's plans were any better or worse. It doesn't mean that Peter was any better or worse. It simply means that God's plans are different for reasons that only he knows, and we need to trust him. Look at verse 3. It says, And because he, speaking of Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews... He proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. And so Herod Agrippa I, he's the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was an amazing builder. He was a, was a wise man in one sense. Um, he, you guys remember the, the temple, Herod's temple. is beautiful. It's great. It's amazing. You know, the stones, 40 tons. How he built this thing, man, it's amazing to me. But he built it because he knew it would please the Jews. And, you know, he had to get in good with them. Here's his grandson with the same mentality, right? I mean, you know, the Romans had set Herod Agrippa I there as a ruler of this area. Uh, to them, he was called a king, but he was still under Roman rule. And so to, to just maintain the peace, Pax Romana was so important. So now he finds that, you know, in, in killing, you know, James, it makes the Jews happy. So now he says, okay, I'll go after Peter, right? And so we see here that he wants to make them happy. He figured he'd score some points. And in doing so, he would score points with the Romans as well. And so he arrests Peter, doesn't execute him immediately because there were some Christians there that were celebrating the feast. And so to play it safe, he figured he wouldn't execute it until after the Jewish holiday. So in the meantime, he put Peter in prison uh, under the custody of four squadrons. That means there were 16 Roman soldiers, four that would guard him at a time, and then there would be a fresh set of strong Roman soldiers at the change of every watch. And so this guy, man, he is, he is really in this place in which he's in prison. He can't escape. 
And so, you know, what do you do as a church? I mean, this is Peter. This is Peter. So what did the church do? They filed a petition in City Hall. Just joking, they didn't do that. You know, they stormed the gates of the prison and they demanded his release. No, they stormed the gates of heaven. And what does the Bible say? Look at verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. You know, not only did they pray, but they offered up those prayers constantly. You want to know the difference a lot of times between the mature Christian and the immature Christian is the immature Christian wants instant prayers answered. Where the mature Christian knows that it's going to take constant prayers that will be answered. You know, now again, I, I, and I look at this, and I don't know how you guys feel in reading this. I need to be very careful here because we're treading on very holy ground. But do you ever wonder in reading this account, did you ever wonder why they didn't say that constant prayer was offered up to the, to the Lord by the church when James was arrested? You know, why doesn't it say that for James? Why does it now say that for Peter? You know, I think we can assume they were praying when James was arrested, but question, to what extent? You know, were they thinking he's going to be okay? You know, he's James, he's one of the three. We don't really need to really storm the gates of heaven that much. You know, every once in a while you flip one up. You know, I don't know. I, when I read this right here, only the Lord knows. But there is a possibility that they didn't pray all that earnestly, all that constantly in James' situation. And now it's different because now they're seeing that these guys can really die. And they're desperate. Now their prayer life has been transformed. Now their prayer life is strong. And they're united as a church. You know, for some reason, when we read the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit has chosen to emphasize this point, that part of prayer, in setting Peter free. And there's a lesson for us. You know, it's not just any prayer. It's uh, the... the the, not just casual prayer, it's constant prayer. Not just superficial, not just habitual, it's earnest prayer. You know, and before we move on, I want to just encourage you guys in this area of, of constant prayer. You know, it's something that we always are, are reminded of, but, you know, it's so important for us as a church. You know, we have prayer meetings on Mondays and you know, we get a handful of people on Wednesday nights, the ladies gather together, and there's a, there's a handful, and Saturday morning, the men gather together, and I don't want to play Holy Spirit, and I don't want to give you my personal convictions, but I tell you what, man, if more people started showing up to those prayer meetings, we would see the fruit of that. You know, Thursday night, we had our, our, our National Day of Prayer, and some people came because of that, others didn't come because of that. They're like, no, Thursday nights, that's our, our study, you know. I don't want to go and pray because they're intimidated by it. Listen, this is what Christians do. And, and when we unite in, in constant prayer, God can do anything. And that's what we're learning here. You know, I, I was thinking of Luke 11, and I want to turn you guys to a couple of passages in Luke. If you would turn to Luke 11...
Luke 11, and notice what we read in, in verse 9. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find, and it will be opened. Knock and Find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and so he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, in the Greek language, it's a present imperative. And what that means is a continuous command. And so literally what Jesus is saying right here in the Greek language is, I am saying to you, keep on asking for something to be given and it shall be given you. Keep on seeking and you shall find. Keep on, I like this, reverently knocking. That's what it literally means in the Greek language. Kenneth Weiss is a Greek scholar. He knows the grammar. He knows the definitions. Keep on seeking Keep on asking, keep on reverently knocking, and God will blow your minds. God will give. God will open doors. God will answer your prayers. But our our tendency oftentimes is to be, well, when it comes to prayer, if it's not instant, then it won't be constant. And God is saying, I'm testing you. Will you get on your knees every day? Later on, he's going to say, will you cry out to me night and day? And that's the difference. That's the difference. You know, if you turn to Luke chapter 18, Jesus, uh, he teaches this more specifically in, in context. It's amazing. And I know you're familiar with this, but we need to be reminded. Luke 18, it says, Then he spoke a parable to them, that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Or if you have a New Living Translation, it says that, that men ought always to pray and never give up. And so what does he say right here? He says in verse 2, There was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not, you know, for a while, didn't answer, but... Afterward, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. You know, it's like this, this widow, she goes to the judge. The judge doesn't really care about her or anything else, but she just keeps bugging him. She just keeps bugging him, asking him for justice. And so this judge, who has no real, real compassion or love or mercy or, or justice, really, he just says, I'm going to give her what she wants because she just keeps bugging me, right? And, and so the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, here's the question. When the Son of Man comes... Will he really find that faith on the earth? You know, and over the years, you know, I, I can tell you that the prayers that I prayed for my children every single day of their life, or, you know, for the church, or for people in the church, or for my wife, or for myself, and I thank God for his grace that he's answered those prayers, but then there are other times when I failed to pray the way that I should. And I think in many ways, we reap, the, we, reap, we reap the results. 
The Lord is saying right here, if you cry out day and night, then he will hear. And he's testing us. And this is really what we see in the church here. You know, we see the same thing in the life of Elijah. Remember when he was in Mount Carmel and uh, after he had given this great victory, you know, we were there recently in Israel and you can visualize the whole thing. He goes up to the top of the mountain and he, and he gets down on his knees and he puts his head between his knees and he prays for rain. And he asks his servant, go check and see if there's any, any rain coming. And the servant says, no. So he, he gets down and he prays again. Oh, any rain yet? No. He prays again. Any rain yet? No. Prays again. Any rain yet? No. Praise again. And most of us, by this time, we would quit. But he just keeps praying until finally, you know, the servant says, well, I see like a cloud. And from my perspective, it looks like a little fist. And then Elijah says, get ready, because the flood is coming. You see, and that's the lesson that we receive. I don't know what it is that's heavy on your hearts. I don't know who it is that you need to pray for. I do know this, that we are responsible to pray for our family, for our spouse, for our children, grandchildren. There are people that we know for sure we need to pray of. There are others and other situations and, and things that we got to lift up to the Lord. And, and we have to really ask Him, are we praying in this way? And so Elijah, the Bible says, in James 5, in verse 16 and 18, confess your trespasses to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. In other words, first get rid of the sin. We want to have an effective prayer life. Confess your trespasses. Confess them to God. Get right with God. And then you start praying for each other, and you're going to start seeing God move. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months and he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. You know, you might be here today and you're thinking not much of yourself. You don't have the, you know, the, the greatest walk. You can't speak in tongues. I don't know what it is. You look at yourself and you're thinking you're not much. Listen, it's not about us. It's about whether or not we'd be willing to be faithful and consistent and constant in prayer to get on our knees to lift those things up to the God who is the one who answers our cries. That's really the difference. And we see that back in Acts chapter 12 as constant prayer is going up for Peter, right? And so you look next at Acts 12 and, and verse 6, watch what happens. And when when Herod was about to bring him out, right? I mean, he's about to kill him. That night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side, and, and he raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And so he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel Split. He departed from him. He didn't even give him a hug. He just left. It was just like that. Crazy. And then when Peter had come to himself, he said, 
Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. I mean, you know, he's chained between two soldiers behind two posts of guards. And, you know, I don't know for sure what Peter's mentality was. I'm reading different uh, views and some say that he was sleeping because he knew Jesus' promise that Jesus had said to him, he's not going to die until he's old. You know, some say that. Others say he was just sleeping because he was probably exhausted. You know, who knows what he's been through? Uh, we don't know for sure. All I know is he's chained between two soldiers, two posts of guards. He falls asleep, but suddenly God sends an angel. Peter's chains fall off. The angel tells Peter to rise, to get dressed, tighten up your belt, put on your chanclas, then the outer garment, your coat, and then the angel just follows, says, follow me right past the guards out the prison until he's walking down the street. And then it kind of hits him, you know, that a miracle has taken place. It wasn't a dream or a vision. He's been set free by an angel in the nick of time. You know, and it wasn't the first time something similar had happened to the apostles earlier in Acts chapter 5 and in verse 19. We see that had happened, but... You know, when you think of angels now being involved in this whole thing, how many times have they intervened in our lives? You know, I don't know if you guys realize it, but, you know, angels are instrumental in God's plan. You know, and I wanted to talk a little bit about angels because they're mentioned 300 times in the Bible and God uses them a lot. You know, when I, when I think about men and, and women and angels is this. God doesn't need them. God uses us to bless us. And I think the same is true for angels. They're all part of his plan. And even one day we're going to see in glory, you know, the angels. And who knows, we'll probably be able to have a little chat with them. And, and we'll ask them, hey, what was it like when God made the world? Or, you know, what does God's voice sound like when he sings or when it's thundering, when he's angry? You know, and they'll tell us stories of creation. And then we'll tell them stories of grace. Because they don't know what grace is. It's going to be amazing, but angels are, are interesting. You know, not only are there angels in the outfield, you guys know there are angels everywhere. You guys know there are angels here. Some believe in, in guardian angels. I personally do believe that there is at least one angel assigned to every single person, according to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Now, I know angels are always watching us because the Bible says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 9. Paul said, for I think that God has displayed us, interesting, displayed us, the apostles last as men condemned to death, for we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So the word spectacle is an interesting Greek word. I think we have a, a, the Greek word here, I'm not sure. Now look at this Greek word right here, um, theatron. Can you think of what English word we get from that? Theater. You know, the angels go to the show, and they watch your life. Yeah, do you know what angel food is? Popcorn. They're just there, and they're, check out, man. <laughs> I mean, there, it's a trip, man. We're a public spectacle to angels who are watching our life. I mean, to me, it's so amazing when you look at this whole thing. You know, I think that when you look at what angels do, um, they're uh, angels, uh, they watch, they can see. 
Uh, we read their overall work in Hebrews 1, verse 14. The New Living Translation says, Therefore angels are only servants, spirits sent to take care of people who will inherit salvation. We know according to Revelation 12, 9, that one-third of the angels fell, became demons, but we still have two-thirds that are on our side. They're for us. They're serving us. We know angels are powerful. According to Isaiah 37, 36, one angel came down and killed 185,000 Assyrians. According to Psalm chapter 8, verse 5, in this life, angels are greater than us, but according to 1 Corinthians 6, 3, we will be greater than them in heaven. And so whatever you do, we've got to know these things. Don't think that when people die, they become angels. That's not biblical. It's nowhere in the Bible. We're different. As a matter of fact, they don't know what grace is. Angels are dealt with. God deals with angels according to perfect justice. If they do anything wrong, that they had the probation period, they fell. There's no second chance for them. They don't know what grace is. And that's why it's interesting when you look at the Ark of the Covenant, and that was there in the tabernacle and then later it would be in the temple, uh, you see the, the cherubim, they're checking out the mercy seat. I think we have a picture of it here. Now that's what the tabernacle would look like. And you wonder, why are the angels looking at this? Well, when you read the Bible, the, the, the tabernacle, this Ark of the Covenant is symbolic of two things. Number one, the throne of God. You read the Bible, the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. And so the angels are all around the throne of God. But when you read about the Ark of the Covenant, you'll also find out this, that, that once a year on the day of, day of Yom Kippur, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood right there on the mercy seat between where those two angels are looking. And it makes you wonder why. Because what it is symbolic of, number one, the throne of God, number two, the cross of God. And the angels... They are perplexed. They don't understand how this could possibly be. See, we don't know how awesome grace is, how God deals with us. Aren't you grateful that he doesn't give you what you deserve? That's justice. Where would you be today if God gave you justice, just justice? Thank God for the cross of Christ. Now God deals with us in a gracious way. Not only is he merciful to us, but he's gracious to us and that he lavishes us with wonderful things. And he gives us heaven, even though we deserve hell. See, this is what angels trip out on this whole thing. They really do. They don't understand grace. And that's why Peter, in his first letter, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that angels long to look into these things. And so just a little bit on angels. You know, Peter now, he's walking down the street. He realizes that through the hand of an angel, God had delivered him from King Herod and those who wanted him dead. And so we read next in Acts chapter 12, in verse 12, it says, And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where they were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate. <laughs> but she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And so they said, it is his angel. Somehow Peter knows exactly where to go, the house of Mary, 
the mother of Mark, who was a young man at the time. Later, he would be one of the guys that would write a gospel. Um, but there were there gathered together praying. And I'll tell you what, you guys, do that. Get together with your friends. Get together with your family and pray. So beautiful when you see this happening. They're gathered together. Lord, please deliver Peter. Lord, please spare Peter. Lord, please intervene. Stretch forth your hand against Herod's hand. Lord, have mercy. Lord, please. And then as they're praying, they hear a knock at the gate. Rhoda goes to answer. And the Bible says that she recognizes Peter's voice. Rhoda, it's me, Peter. And she's so happy that she doesn't even think, you know, to open the gate. She runs back and immediately announces to everyone that it's Peter, and they tell her she's crazy. When it says that she's beside herself, it literally means that she's out of her mind, you know. She's, you know, crazy. It's not him. It may be an angel. maybe a hologram. I don't know what they're thinking, right? Meanwhile, Peter's still there knocking, right? I'm sure he's wondering, you guys got to come and open up for me because the soldiers are going to come after me. Right? And so we read in verse 16 as he continues to knock. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had happened become of Peter but when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. And so they finally opened the door. They're astonished to see Peter. Um, let me ask you a question, okay? How many of you think they were surprised to see Peter? Here they are praying, Lord, bring Peter back. Lord, spare him. And then when he does come back, they're like, whoa. You know, <laughs> you know they're surprised. And I mean, and, and we're going to see, the, this is so beautiful how gracious God is. You know, it's not like they were necessarily praying and, and expecting him to show up at any time. Because when he does show up, they tell Rhoda she's crazy or she's had maybe one too many tacos, you know, that she's seeing things, right? And, and I don't know about you, but when I see this right here, how, how, how they're praying, but it doesn't really seem like they're expecting as, as strongly as we might think. You know what I see? I see a mustard seed of faith. That's what I see. A mustard seed of faith. You know, in Matthew 17, there's a story in which the apostles were wondering why they couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus explains it to them in Matthew 17, verse 20. Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Right here, they moved a mountain. Right here, God, by the Holy Spirit, definitely points to the power of prayer that the whole church was constantly praying for Peter. But they don't have this great expecting, naming and claiming, blab it and grab it faith. But they do have a mustard seed of faith. And by that mustard seed, they move, God moves mountains. And when I put it all together, this is what I, I see. People not necessarily, you know, naming it and claiming it, but they just keep 
on praying. That's what they do. You know, there's a foundation and fiber of faith in God who's able to do anything. We read it earlier. Jesus said, just keep on praying. Don't quit. Men ought always to pray and not to faint. They just kept praying. And so, you know, what I would say to you and to myself is whatever the mountain is that we need to ask God to, to move in our life, keep on praying. Every day I wake up and nothing fancy. I not, not, not even feel it. But I pray it. God bless your church. God protect direct and perfect my children. Lord, and I have these prayers. I pray every single day. And this is a mustard seed. Like I said, I might not feel it. It's not fancy. But it's faithful. And that's what God wants. You know, I pray that we would know that even if our faith is as small as a mustard seed, God's not small we're praying to the God who sits on the throne and fills the universe. Just remember, you don't want to fall behind in your prayers. Not catch up. Mustard. Mustard seed, okay? Remember that. <laughs> now, in, in Peter, you know, his situation, it's interesting how we see, you know, how some Christians can get weird. They're like, well, God is going to protect me and I don't really need to do anything. No, Peter here, when he tells them the news, he leaves. He knows that those soldiers are sentenced to suffer his death. And they're going to be finding him, and they're going to be searching for him with all their heart. So he leaves. So, you know, it's not that we're careless. And this is how we approach life. You know, Peter is set free by an angel, but then he, he lays low for a while. He tells the disciples to let James know What's going on? This is the James, the brother of our Lord. He's the leader now in Jerusalem. And Peter departs to another place. You know, and sometimes we have to do that. We're only going to see Peter one other time in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, as, as we see now in the book of Acts. And God's not just doing this randomly. There is an intentional transition now from, you know, people like James and, and Peter to Saul or Paul and Barnabas from the Jews now, you know, to the Gentiles, right? And as for those soldiers that guarded Peter, Roman law said that if a prisoner escaped a soldier's guard, the soldier would suffer that fate intended to the prisoner. And Herod therefore puts these soldiers to death. Now it's interesting, Herod is in Jerusalem because he claims to be a Jew. So he's there, you know, pa uh, celebrating the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But now that that's done, he goes back to Caesarea, that's party city, and he goes back uh, to the palace there. And we close uh, our, our, the, in verse 20. It says, Now when Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide their friend, that's kind of a cool name, huh, Blastus? You should name your son that, um, it's biblical. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel, here's another angel, an angel of the Lord struck him 
because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. <laughs> and so we're going to tie this all together in the end, but it's an interesting story at this point. Apparently there had been a schism between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's right there just on the northern border of Israel, modern day Lebanon, right? And uh, uh, apparently they, they want to make amends because Israel would supply their food. We would even see that in the Old Testament. Israel would supply grain to them. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon, they traveled to Caesarea. And Josephus tells us, Josephus is a historian. He tells us that on this day, Herod was threaded in silver threads. Imagine that, taking silver. And so he had this silver garment on. And he, his outfit shined in the sun. And he gave this speech in this uh, glorious amphitheater. Now, when we were in Israel recently, we spent some time here. And, and you, could, you could just kind of picture Herod there giving his oration. I think we have a picture. Even now, it looks nice, huh? They renovated a little bit, but it was even bigger than this. And so here's Herod, and he's got his silver clothes on, and he's given this oration, and all the people of Tyre and Sidon are there. And they're applauding him and they're, they're with one voice saying the, the voice of a, of a God and, and not of a man. What they were really saying is the voice of the man who gives us food, but Herod didn't understand that. He believes his own press. This is what he wanted. And he was in one sense uh, interesting. Like I said earlier, a professing believer because he was a descendant of the Maccabees. And as a professing believer, he should have known better. I remember one time, I still remember this as if it were yesterday. We were in this little office on Garvey, and uh, we were having a prayer meeting, and there were three of us there. And, you know, one guy came in. I don't know, you know, how he showed up. Really don't know his whole story, but I remember we were talking, and this is where I got this saying from. He told me, he said, Manny, never touch the gold. Never touch the girls. And never touch the the glory. Because those are the three things that men fall in. Women, money, pride. And here's Herod, and they're, they're saying, the voice of a God and not a man. And he's eating it all up. You know, he's, he's absorbing the glory that belongs to God alone. And so God makes an example of him and strikes him. Because he did not give glory to God. And the Bible says he was eaten by worms and then died. Now the interesting thing is Luke is a physician. And he uses a specific word for worm that describes these worms that grew to be you know, 10 to 16 inches long. Think about that. These worms inside of him. Apparently these particular round worms live off the fluids inside of the intestines. And so Josephus tells us that Herod was struck down... And five days later, he died. This is a guy who thought he was all big and bad. He kills James, thinking he's going to stop the church. His life suddenly ends. And it it ends in, in shame. Eaten by worms. Died. And then it makes a contrast. Look at verse 24. But the word of God grew. You might even say the word of God lived. The word of God grew and multiplied. 
And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. Isn't that a beautiful way? Fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. God is building the church. Herod tried to stop the word of God. He tried to stop the church of God. He tried to stop God. How can you stop God? Whenever there's a battle between light and dark, I promise you, light will always win. The word of God would spread. And even though leaders might pass away or they might change, you know, from James and Peter to Barnabas and Saul, it doesn't matter. Jesus stays the same. And Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? It's cool to know, huh? So let's close with a few lessons. And um, I just want to, you know, there's so much here. There's so much that we gather from this chapter. But I, I did want to just touch on some things. Number one, on death. On death, and uh, we see three people here. I think that we learn lessons from. Number one is James. We all have a day, a day to die. Don't be afraid of it. It's okay because when, if you know, if everything goes well, you're just following the Lord. You're not perfect, but proper. You're sincere. You know, you're covered by His grace, and then the day comes, and that's okay. James finished his race. Doesn't matter if it's a sprint, a mile, or a marathon. He finished his race. Number two, the deliverance. Peter, it wasn't time for him to die yet. Right? And so Herod tried to kill him. Bottom line is, he's invincible. You're invincible until the day. You know, some people, they didn't want to go to Israel. Oh, don't go to Israel right now. It's hot over there. And, you know, things are going on with Syria. Man, if it's my day to go, I'm okay with that. But the bottom line is, God's going to keep us safe. You don't have to be afraid. I will say this, and I was, I was talking to uh, Mr. Chacon the other day, and he's there in the hospital, and, you know, he's, he's, he's fighting the fight to live. I said, fight it, Mr. Chacon, fight it. You try to live, because we want to be here for our family. We want to be here for our church. That's okay. We don't just lay down and passively die, no. But if it's time, then we're okay with it. So there is a day. Until then, there will always be a deliverance. But then the third thing is interesting with, with Herod. There's a danger. There is a danger that you, we can die prematurely if we're reckless and rebellious. You know, I don't know for sure, only the Lord knows, but I've seen some interesting thing happen, things happen to Christians who rebel against God. You know, you go out there and you know the Lord and you go and you do crystal meth or you get high or whatever, you leave your family. Man, you're dangerous. You're living now and dangerously. You know, and sometimes even people get the thoughts of taking their own life. That's premature. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, these are the healthy things that we see within the scriptures when it comes to, to death. And those are lessons that we have to learn from here. Herod, that, that probably wasn't supposed to be his day to die. God was dealing with him. God was trying to get him right, but he wouldn't listen, right? And when we learn that about death, we learn this about prayer. What, what we learn today is that you don't have to be fancy. Or you don't have to necessarily feel it. If you do, cool. Key is be faithful. Constant prayer was offered to God by the church. Be faithful in prayer, even if your faith is just the faith 
of a mustard seed. You guys saw how small that was? That was so small. Small faith in a big God. And then one day you're going to see as God flexes his muscles and he answers prayer that your faith will grow. Right? And then the third thing is regarding the church. We're going to be harassed. You know, later this word is used throughout the book of Acts and even Peter uses it regarding the trials that we go through. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to have hard times. You're going to have hard times and people are going to pass away and people are going to suffer. We're going to go through things that we don't understand. We're going to be harassed, but we will be victorious, right? Because we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. And Jesus said in John 16, 33, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. You know, God has a way of taking all these things that are tough to understand and working them out for good.